upbringing, which was a constant support of curiosity and a constant support of the value of education with this constant drumbeat of you have to be of service to others. You have to give back and recognize how lucky you've been. Again, I, I was brought up with very, very modest means. My parents were teachers, but that sense that I was lucky to be able to go to school and I was lucky to live where I lived um, at that time. Hello, welcome back to I Want Our Job, the podcast. Our guest today is April Rini, an advisor, speaker, and writer. April bridges the gap between private, public, and social sectors as an advisor to startups, established companies, policymakers, think tanks, investors, and local and national governments. In a variety of organizations, April leads discussions on policy reform, global expansion, sustainable development, emerging markets, and the future of work. April has lived overseas for more than 10 years. She's traveled to more than 100 countries. She's also worked more than in more than 50 countries, averaging about 20 countries a year. In this show, April discusses how her parents instilled in her a love for education, travel, discovery, adventure, and giving back to the world. She also shares how the tragedy of losing her parents when she was 20 changed her and her, how her life path evolved. After exploring many career paths, she found her way to live the values her parents taught her, but with a great sense of urgency and a mindset of doing work every day towards big and impactful goals, while also creating a life full of adventure and exploration. We hope this show inspires you to explore more. As April's father showed her, there is an opportunity everywhere to learn and make things better in your local park, library, community, or wherever your curiosity leads you. Here's April sharing her story and telling us about her job. So because I really, I sit at the intersection of, for instance, business and startups and governments and policymakers, and then I do a lot of work around global development. If I know the person is more involved or inclined towards one of those areas or another, um, I will probably use a different way of phrasing what I do. But an advisor writ large, um, I give advice. I, I advise, I counsel, I um, provide input, typically on really big picture strategic issues that are affecting new business models. And that's a lot of what I do these days. So there's an element around innovation, around entrepreneurship, um, around where the world is heading. So sometimes people have called me like a futurist. Um, I don't typically use that term, but part of why it's difficult to describe exactly what I do is because a lot of the issues I'm looking at and dealing with, again, with business and with policymakers, aren't issues that we've seen before. Or we might have seen them before, but they looked and felt very, very different because we were talking about this, you know, 50 years ago, so to speak. Does that make sense? A little yeah. Bit? So just give us an idea of like what kind of clients you would have and what would a project look like? Like how long you know, do your engagements range from a week, a day to like months? Um, mm, that's actually a great question, which also is going to go back to the earlier one, which I should probably clear up straight away. Sometimes, a lot of times people say, oh, you're a consultant. And I say, you know, consultant's a fair term. In my mind, there is a distinguish, a, a, a subtle distinction between being a consultant and uh, an advisor. And what I mean by that is I actually don't usually do projects. 
as an advisor, I'm typically brought into a company over several years often. And my, the mandate of what I have to do is much less about, hey, we need you to write a report. We want to work with you for three months or six months or whatever. They're much more like, there's almost an element that's like being an in-house anthropologist mm. where what they're looking at is we know the world is changing. We know that there are issues that we don't have time to keep our eyes on because we're too busy with the day-to-day of, you know, building and launching a product or trying to grapple with this particular uh, policy issue. But we know the world is changing and that more things are becoming available as opportunities and, and as challenges every day. Can you guide us through that? And so a lot of what I do is actually in, effectively embed myself with team and coach and counsel them through some bigger picture issues. Um, but it doesn't, every now and again, it does factor into a, hey, we need you to um, review this strategic plan that we're uh, working on. But it's not, what I don't do is write reports or I, and I don't necessarily design products. Now I might be involved in the creative process alongside that, but what I do is much more around um, looking at issues that are on the horizon, forging, a lot of what I do too is forging relationships of whether I'm with a company or with um, a policy team there's this inevitable question of who else do we need to know? Who do we need to bring into this conversation? Um, and I can use one example. For instance, um, I have worked with Airbnb in the past. Um, I, I mean, I've worked with Airbnb for a long time. Now, I don't work with them in San Francisco or New York or um, major markets that you read about in the headlines. Uh, I have worked with them in areas where they don't actually have any physical presence other than hosts. They don't have an office. They don't have a team. Um, I've worked with them in Sub-Saharan Africa. I've worked with them um, in Eastern Europe. I've worked with them in areas where they want to get the balance of business right. They don't necessarily have any local experts in terms of culture or what it's like on the ground. And because my career has been very uh, international from from the point of birth, actually, but my whole career has been built around um, cross-border international um, business. Uh, it has brought me in touch. You know, I've worked in over 50 different countries. I can explain some of the cultural differences and nuances and context. And so for a company like Airbnb, for me, it's not a matter of, hey, we need you to go and you know negotiate something. I, I don't represent any company that I would work with, I don't represent them publicly, um, but I help them understand what's the business landscape, how might uh, you know expansion in Estonia or Finland look or feel different than in Rwanda. Now, granted, on, at the surface, that's a very easy question. That's a that's a big difference, but basically helping them, helping other startups as well, better understand what does international expansion look like, um, who do they need to know in these in these countries, and that often goes far beyond um, government, for instance. They need to know who else is part of the startup ecosystem. What does the VC industry look like there? Um, what are some of these bigger issues, you know, if you look across countries, in some cases it could be everything from um, how fast cities are growing, what's the role of women, not just 
uh, everything from girls in education, but up to um, you know women in the workforce. Are women CEOs and women women politicians? Are they common? Are they not? Um, who are some of the key levers and drivers of a particular local economy? Um, and what is happening? In society so there's an element I'm not an anthropologist but there's an element of that there's an element clearly of technology mm -hmm. and then my background is both law and business both of those degrees both of those kinds of training do come to bear as well but I often joke what I do is actually a, com a little combination of all of that and in every field in which I operate I can guarantee you you know there are lawyers that are be far better lawyers than me there are finance folks that are far better at just the finance piece. There are local experts, you know, somebody who's going to know more about just, you know, Estonia or Turkey or Mexico or whatever. But for me, the combination of those skills is where I actually can add value um, because it's relatively rare that you have people that know a whole bunch about across disciplines. Yeah. And that's what I try to, to bring to the table. That is so fascinating. Thank you. And I do appreciate that distinction between consultant versus advisor. Like this is all new and fascinating to me. And I'm sure a lot of people also not in this space, you know, don't know that difference. And I'm curious, you know, without saying your specific, you know, Model. I'm curious, how does an uh, advisory compensation model work? Like, do, are you hired annually? Or just like, let's say somebody is listening and thinks that this would be their dream job. However, I do think you have to be highly qualified in order to land in this type of role. Um, I'm just curious how that would work financially. Yeah, sure. Happy to talk about it. Um, it is something that I've I've given a lot of thought to. Um, and you might be, hopefully, you're both inspired and uh Inspired, I think, by my answers as well as it allows each person to think about what their equivalent is. So um, I am glad you brought up the whole, like, <laughs> it didn't happen overnight. Uh, and I didn't get here without, in fairness, a whole lot of work along the way. And I'm somebody who, yeah, well, and just, you know, I have been an advocate for uh, education as a whole. And, and education doesn't have to be only in the classroom. But that sense of I was raised in a family where nothing was taken as a right, everything was a privilege, and to take one's education really seriously and to work really hard and to understand that, you know, I'm my goal is never to be the best at something, but to always do my best. Um, so I say this also because when I decided to go independent, and part of that was a deliberate decision, and part of that was the way that life just had started to unfold, where I thought, you know, when I went independent on day one, I had, I truly didn't think it was going to work, but I knew I wanted to try. And so I had got myself to the point where, you know, I said, I'm going to give this a year. I'm going to give this a year of my life and see what happens, because I may regret how it goes. Um, you know, I'm sure I will make mistakes. I'm sure I will stumble. But I think I know for sure I will regret, I will regret even more not trying. Yeah. So I say, I say this because in the early days, I made a huge sweat equity investment where I knew there wouldn't be revenue on day one. I knew I was going to have to establish expertise, networks. I get really clear on what I did and didn't do. And also that I would need to riff on my business model. And also very important um, detail slash caveat in all of this is I'm able to do what I do and my business model can be, can have the degree of flexibility that it has because I am independent, because I don't have a boss 
and I don't have direct reports. And I'm wondering, like, what excites you the most or keeps you up at night when you think about universal basic income and future work? Yeah, so the future of work, I mean, it's kind of the <laughs> two sides of the same coin in terms of what makes me most excited is to think about and really sit and think about and and landscape and map out and all of that, the universe, truly the universe of opportunities that we now have to not just earn income, but to really reach our fullest potential as human beings in terms of, you know, we can talk about it as it's, it's never been easier or cheaper to be your own boss, right? You think about if you wanted to go into business 30 years ago, you needed an office and a fax machine and a phone line and, you know, business suits were every day and this, that, and the other. And like now you need a website and an internet connection and you can be anywhere. And if you have skills or products or services that are valuable, like boom, yeah. it's, you might need to pay for a business registration. Yes, true. And you do need to pay your taxes, but you only pay taxes if you earn income. So like it, the barriers to entry have just plummeted. And that to me is so exciting, truly. And I get that there are utopian and dystopian scenarios of this. But at the end of the day, and again, we can, I don't want to call out any particular platform. We can, but you know, it's not, I'm not trying to single any out. The ways in which the different platforms can, can connect talent to opportunity, this just wasn't possible. And, and what I love is it's not just in a Monday through Friday, full-time employment kind of setting. We're talking about, you know, uh, parents with young children at home who need to work on a flexible basis. That's now possible. We're talking about retirees who don't want to be fully in retirement. Well, now they don't have to be. We're talking about ways to make supplemental income, which may not be a full-time job, but wow, it really helps at the end of the day. Even if it's not, if you know, some things are funding the bills. A lot of times you find this income, it's being able to afford things that were previously out of reach. Um, maybe even funding some travel or funding different things that help bring us um, fulfillment. That is so exciting and so unprecedented. I don't think that we pause enough to really, to really just appreciate how much we can we can bash it all we want that we're fragmenting work and all of that. But the fact remains, none of this was even possible. We're giving a lot of options and opportunities that weren't in the men on the menu before. That makes me super excited. And, and it also starts breaking down other barriers around you know, education and credentialing and you know, who's allowed to be part of the workforce yes. and what does it look like to be part of the workforce. And like all of that is up for grabs. Yes, so, absolutely. And the diversity of people that, that come into the workforce, right? Um, exactly. Exactly. So that to me, and you know, it's no surprise that my, the earliest, um, my earliest professional experiences were very much geared on global development. And um, if you've heard the term base of the economic pyramid, so the economically active poor, who are poor, not because they're by any means, unintelligent, or don't have passion and commitment, like the economically active poor, are some of the brightest, most innovative, um, proactive communities that I've ever met. They're poor because they were born in the wrong place at the wrong time on the wrong side of the tracks. That's it. And just as easily it could have been you or me. So for me, this, this, this element of empowerment and breaking down barriers and increasing access 
And here we can talk about, you know, for me, access to finance, which was my time in microfinance. Here, future of work, we're talking about more access to opportunity. Um, incredibly exciting. So I think that's the thing that like, jazzes me and, and really makes me think there is absolutely benefit and good in this future of work space. Now, the flip side, in terms of what keeps me up at night, it is looking at that same set of opportunities and um, recognizing the difference between when we look at this access to opportunity and we look at it from what I will term more of a responsible, primarily corporate citizen uh, perspective in terms of increasing access to opportunity, bringing other people in um, to the labor force as a whole. My biggest concern is um, when companies look at these new ways of enabling people to earn income. And again, gig economy, freelance economy, um, those are those terms aren't entirely, um, you know, they don't fully describe the extent of what's going on, but more of the independent kind of working. If companies are doing this strictly as a cost-saving device, um, they are actually shirking their broader social responsibilities. And if we have companies do that en masse, we have a workforce that actually is still doing the work, but with far fewer protections in place. And so the trillion dollar question is, you know, if you look at, if as a whole, if, and again, I say the word companies, but if organizations writ large can actually tap into a highly talented, more flexible workforce, that there are huge productivity gains, but also huge gains to personal fulfillment and, and so forth. What you hear people say is that, you know, there's this quote, flexibility is the new stability. And um, I think that's really a farce. We need both flexibility and a degree of stability and stability coming in the form of um, enough income to earn a decent living. Um, enough income or financial buffer, primarily, that you can weather emergencies, things like that. And so right now, the rules are not in place to see anything other than you're either an employee with full benefits or you're independent without. Mm -hmm. And so we need right now, like the reality is in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so it keeps me up right now because we don't see enough uh, pri primarily policymakers taking bold action to actually reform some of these policies and, and not that there's a one-size-fits-all solution but even doing things around pilots we see a handful sure a handful of pilots around universal basic income i'm looking at this not even around ubi necessarily back up one step and simply say if you're going to be working in some way shape or form for an organization what's the bare minimum that um that that organization has to any worker, we can think about this as you know, pro rata. If you're working a quarter time for an organization, great, you know, they're responsible for a quarter of what your benefits would be if you were a full-time employee. Um, that's probably overly simplistic, but it gives you a sense of like, this isn't rocket science, it's just that we've built these models that have now become a little bit like straight jackets. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what keeps me up at night. Now, back over on education, um, part of me is like, oh, don't get me started, because there is such a clear linkage between education, you know, as children, then 
higher education and what higher education is and is not preparing students to do with then the workforce and lifetime learning and then obviously later into one's career, retirement and so forth. And recently, um, this year, I've spent a few different occasions with groups of universities, uh, universities as well as community colleges, looking at higher ed and its preparedness for the future of work. And I have to say, this is across dozens of institutions, not a single one of them is prepared. Not a single one of them is actually fully aware of the extent of the rise of independent workers um, or looking at the fact that we talk about how the jobs 10 years from now, many of them, we don't actually know what they will be. And that's, that's true, but that's not an excuse for universities or in here, I'll just say educational institutions as a whole. That's not an excuse for that for them to say, well, we don't know what it's going to be, so we're going to do nothing. Uh, and by and large, that's what we have. And I, I, I am totally generalizing here, but net net, we there are, you know, I can count on one hand, I think, the number of higher ed institutions that are really leaning in to some of these these um, these trends afoot. Now, when it comes to what are the kinds of skills that I think we need to learn, um, obviously things like I suspect things like coding are going to be right up there with reading and writing and arithmetic within uh, a generation. Some countries already have coding as a requirement, but I want to go beyond that. Um, a lot of what we're looking at relates to things like, I think it should be a requirement for any, any student who is graduating from high school should have built a small business online. Just that. Love it. Now, they don't have to run it for long, like, but what they need to do, this shows how to build a website, how to build a mobile strategy, how to balance a budget. These are practical, tactical things that a 15 and 16 year old can figure out. Absolutely. Because some high school students are already running businesses by the time they graduate. Some of them, you know, they cover their way to college. That's the kind of real life practical skill that not only embeds a bunch of different disciplines in it, but also if you think about having to do something like that, it also prepares you for a workforce in which Within 10 years, it's going to be equally likely that somebody graduating from college is going to be independent as opposed to an employee. So it teaches a kind of entrepreneurship. It teaches a kind of, I get how all these pieces fit together. Um, as we look at the future of work, which is much more, most likely, much more independent, um, having to learn how to build a business when you're in the position of, you know, having already gone through your education and not really, having to put together all those pieces much later in your life is really putting the cart behind the cart before the horse. So skills that relate to entrepreneur, entrepreneurial thinking and being proactive and being a real self-starter, um, skills that relate to financial literacy, cannot underscore that enough. You know, math is a start, but this is about whether you know how to run a budget for your family, for your business, for with and around your children, that's key. And the third piece that I would call out is, um, which relates, so financial literacy, but also digital literacy. And here I'm actually not talking about, do you know how to build an app? I'm talking about, do you know how to put your phone down? Do you know how to still have a, a conversation with other humans? And there's a term, uh, I don't think it came up on the other interview, but are you familiar with what, with DQ? Not Dairy Queen. No. 
So DQ. So DQ is digital intelligence. Now, go back. And we, you, you may remember that we have IQ. And then there, we have this thing called EQ, which is emotional intelligence. Right. And some years ago, the, the founders of this term EQ realized that emotional intelligence was likely as important, if not a more important predictor of one's overall success in life. It wasn't whether you had an IQ of, you know, 180. It was do you have emotional sensibilities, compassion, empathy, curiosity, understanding, all of that. Right. So you have IQ and EQ. And if you look at you know, EQ ends up winning the day on pretty much every metric over time. When you look at people who are not just successful, but happy and whom other people like. DQ is the latest manifestation of, of that kind of moniker. DQ being digital intelligence really focus on kids these days because what we're worried about is a, what, what's known in China as the heads down society. We're worried about, you know, people who know how to interface with their, with their screen, but don't actually know they've lost the ability to connect with other humans. And so, as well as things like, do you know when you're being um, hacked? Do you know when you're the victim of um, cyberbullying or cybercrime? Or you know, DQ is really that bundle of um, skills and behaviors. And so I mention this because when I look at what are the skills we need, I think it's DQ, financial literacy, uh, open-mindedness, entrepreneurship, proactiveness, self-starter. You know, and these are not things that get bundled easily into any formal curriculum today. You talked on the other on the Rad podcast, which I heard about your early influences and how much your parents influenced, you know, taught you to really uh, feel grateful for the education you had. Can you tell us a little bit about how they influenced the career choices you made? Sure. So uh, both of my parents were educators and my father in particular, he was a cultural geographer, <laughs> meaning that he studied the migratory patterns of people and plants and animals and he loved maps and obviously geography, but just basically what made the world work and how different species and perspectives would come together and sort of the blending of diversity. So gave me an early love of, of global diversity, cultural diversity, um, a desire to travel and all of that. My parents, they didn't really say this explicitly, but I think as a child I, I um, absorbed it, where on the one hand, the, the, the two elements that were drilled into me from a very early age, one was the world is bigger than your own backyard. You have a duty to go out and explore it. Um, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do that for you, but we will not ever get in your way if you want to go and explore something that goes beyond what you know. The second was this whole sense of the fact that I was a girl and got to go to school made me really just a lucky kid and that no one could ever take that education away from me. But because I had been so lucky and that I simply got to go to school, I had a duty to give back to those who had not been so lucky or had had a harder time, you know, either couldn't get an education or had were, you know, had much greater obstacles in, in doing so. And as a result of that, what I'm getting at is the subtext there was uh, my parents never said that they would actually disown me, but I think I interpreted it as a kid. The one way that I, it was very clear to me that I would no longer be welcome at home is if I ever made my career about me. 
This was always about you've been lucky to be able to get an education and work hard. You have to give back. So you have to use that knowledge and use that access to education to benefit others. They never said you have to be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or anything. That was never it. They said you can do so much to help others. You can be a doctor. You can be a teacher. You can help others in lots of different ways. You just have to put others' needs um, or the ability to impact positively others' lives first. And so that was the mindset that I moved forward in. And then gradually it was a matter of figuring out what I liked. And I always liked math and science. So I thought, you know, I entered college pre-med because I figured maybe I would do like Doctors Without Borders or something like that. I was interested in math, science, and global development. Ended up realizing that I was going to spend far much, far too much time in the lab if I went pre-med. So uh, ditched that a little ways into college. I changed my major in college something like seven times. Uh, because, But I was exploring the different ways that each major could have impact. And ultimately ended up settling on international relations, which was economics and political science. And the economics piece is what took me then into global development, international finance, development finance, development economics, trade, et cetera, et cetera. And from there, it moved into, oh, and what does this mean for business and innovation and business models? And you, you sort of see how different iterations continued, again, in a different way to pull back the layers of that, peel back the layers of the onion to, to find me where I am today. But it was always, you know, it was, it was a, the upbringing, which was, a constant support of curiosity and a constant support of the value of education with this constant drumbeat of you have to be of service to others. You have to give back and recognize how lucky you've been. Again, I, I was brought up with very, very modest means. My parents were teachers, but that sense that I was lucky to be able to go to school and I was lucky to live where I lived um, at that time. Lucky to be able to go to school and I was lucky to live where I lived um, at that time. They sound so amazing and I'm sure would be so in tremendously proud of you. And I, you, you mentioned how you lost them at an early age and that really influenced some mm -hmm. of the decisions you make. And you talked about how you when you think about your philosophy of what you do with your life and if I die today mentality, can you tell us all about that? Yeah, you bet. So um, you are right. The, the, the single hardest thing I've ever experienced and probably ever will experience, although time will tell. Um, but when I was in college, uh, both of my parents were killed in a car accident. And that was really my first taste or touch with um, death and loss and all of that. And it, it transformed me on multiple levels, both because, you know, I lost them at a time where I had grown up enough to be able to make a little bit of sense about the world. Um, they had raised me to be independent. So going back to things like financial literacy, uh, my parents had actually put me in charge of my own budget when I was seven. So I knew how to run a budget and I knew how to, you know, get myself from point A to point B. But I, I lost them at an age where I still really didn't know a lot about how the world worked uh, and certainly didn't know what my professional path was, go was going to look like. And so, um, you know, what I've just described, I think, around the, the career of service and the giving back and that sense of privilege as opposed to something being my right has always really struck with me, um, struck me and, and stuck with me, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, I had, it was difficult 
my initial reaction after they died, believe it or not, was that I would just I was going to follow in their footsteps and become an educator myself because it was clearly a career of service and I love to learn and you know I'll just go be a professor and and with all due respect I mean being a professor is an amazing vocation and an amazing path um, but I learned the hard way through a lot of trial and error and real soul searching that in fact um, I needed to push myself a little bit harder that for me doing what I think they expected me to do, but wasn't necessarily where I was happiest, um, wasn't going to fulfill me over time. And so, uh, I guess we don't, I don't want to go into all of the different details, but, um, there were a few different settings in which I really had to turn inwards and take a real a hard look. The whole, that whole notion of like the, the, um, unexamined life is not worth living. I had to like almost over examine my life partly because of the loss I had experienced and that, that sort of fatalistic um, side effect, which was, well, if I'm going to die tomorrow, like I was dealt a very real example of, well, maybe I will die tomorrow. Um, and this happened throughout my 20s in the aftermath of my parents' accident, where I was constantly asking myself that on a daily basis. But ultimately, it forced me to really go deep around wh- how I defined purpose and impact and where which kinds of activities and which kinds of topics where I felt my curiosity most peaked and my self, if you will, most challenged and challenged in a way where I would actually be able to develop new skills and contribute to others. And that's, again, where it led me. Had you asked me on day one, I would have been like, I don't know, it's, it's medicine. And then, nope, it's going to be um, mathematics and then nope it's going to be anthropology and and ultimately it ended up being around this whole piece of economic development and going back to what I was saying earlier how do we help people individuals and families earn income in new ways create livelihoods they couldn't before rethink how business is done in a way that's more um, inclusive and equitable and candidly also generally tends to be more sustainable for the planet so you mentioned um, how there's this pull of are we are we have doing enough in our life and you mentioned how as long as every day you're doing something like if you die and you're traveling and makes you're one step closer to the life goals that you want to lead then it'll be okay and that really inspired me like I wrote it down to myself mm-hmm. that you know if you die on, on a plane you know that you you're doing what you want to be doing you know what I mean Absolutely. And if um, my husband was has been really helpful in this regard, where he's a, the first person I met who truly, I would say, when he if he were to define his life mission, it's very much a life mission. And he can't he there are parts of it, of course, that he can chunk into like, well, this year or the next 10 years. But like, it's much more at any point. He knows that his mission is one that he may never, ever achieve. But if each day I say achieve in the entirety because it's such a huge um, piece that he's bit off. Uh, and, and my husband, he focuses a lot around issues. Um, he, his, his area of specialty is actually trust. Mm-hmm. So, right? So, like, lifetime mission of repairing trust. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But this sense that if every day forward you can make – if every day you can make a little bit of incremental progress forward – then whenever that day comes that, you know, it's your last day on earth, you can die with some or you can move on with some sense of having made an, an impact but not getting too hung up on 
well, did I do it this quarter or last quarter or whatever? Yes. I love that mindset. I just think it changes everything and lets you like breathe and not be anxious and just know, you know, this, I did my best today towards these, you know, great massive goals I have to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And so I know travel, your dad, you know, being a geographer, which I imagine created great bedtime stories and general conversations all day long. Um, So travel has always been important to you. I'm wondering how different do you think your life would be today without all that travel that you've done? Very different. (laughs) Very. Um, Yeah, I can't. I I can't even even imagine it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can. I, I think it so framed what I wanted to do, how I saw myself vis-a-vis even my friends when I was four and five years old with different cultures and what I thought was cool. And, you know, I've always been somebody like the more different I can look from somebody or the more different whatever languages they speak are from what I speak, like that to me is, as a kid, I remember being thinking that was just the epitome of cool. Um, anything that was around conformity just struck me as kind of boring, Mm -hmm. but I think that was, it's the nature and nurture, right? I, there was an element of me that was probably always a little bit like, Oh, what's interesting and out there. But when you can mold it and frame it and shape it with the context of being able to visit some different places. And in fairness, we didn't do a lot of international travel when I was growing up. My father, as a geographer, we did a lot of um, exploring of national parks. We did a lot of study of different animal species and plant species and that sort of thing. So it's not that it has to be, oh, we took our family to you know Europe or to Asia. That's not it at all. We didn't actually have the resources to do a lot of that. It was also, as a kid, exposure to anything that's different from what you find at home. And I think these days there's so much more, even within a given city, um, exposing kids to other faiths, to other foods, to like, you, there's a microcosm in most mid to larger cities um, here in the U.S. And, and around the world. So I'm always very cautious to say, I think my life would be very, very different had I not had the exposure to diversity, but it is not one of my one of, I feel like an important, not mantra, but a principle for me, because people have asked me this all the time as I've gotten older as well, of like, well, how do you afford all the travel and this, that, and the other? And I'm here to say that don't, expense is not, this does not require a lot of financial resources to be able to travel, to be able to have this kind of mindset. Um, it it depends, you can, you can get so much close to where you are and particularly for you know anyone who's listening to this with children yes travel is a huge gift and but but it also can be a train ride it also can be um a camping trip um yeah there's there are many ways that you can sort of peel that back and then for me it became how do I travel as resourcefully as possible and the younger you know the younger you are the cheaper it is to travel full stop so yeah lower expectations <laughs> we to come out of that come at that as well yeah no thank you so much i mean that's true we're bringing that up that people who don't have enough money i mean international trip is so expensive for an entire family but like national parks going to the park and starting to learn the names of the trees like you said and the insects and there's so much there so thanks for thanks for bringing that up thank you so much for sharing your time with us A pleasure. Well, thank Thank you for the invitation invitation again, and um, look forward to seeing where this goes.